Good morning. There you have reading, so you can claim you catched up with your Bible reading for the summer, <laughs> or at least for last week, that I'm sure you were enjoying the sunshine. Uh, it's so good to be together today. Uh, you see, we hear a lot about grace uh, in the Christian circles, and in the Reformed tradition, grace is our banner as we proclaim salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. But sometimes grace, it's, it's a concept that it's hard to comprehend, uh, to comprehend it in its full depth. Uh, and maybe that's why the Bible has tons of illustrations about grace all over the place, perhaps more than anything else. You know, it's like uh, talking to someone who has gone through the horrible loss of a son or a spouse. And while we can empathize with them and, and assume that it must be a horrible pain going through those feelings and, uh, you know, what they're living and what they're going through, and we could never understand the emotions. We could never understand the sadness, the frustration, the despair that they're actually living. But you see, with grace, it's different because... While we may get to experience grace in person, the noise of our desires and the pollution of our wants fog our perspective, and then we have an underrated view of grace. So my hope this morning is, is that as we look at the circumstances in Ahab's life, that we'll be able to see how God gives his grace to the most undeserving and we'll see that God shows his grace in coming to a rescue. God shows his grace in revealing himself. God shows his grace in displaying his power. And God shows his grace in giving us a choice. So with this in mind, let us pray together for God's guidance. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit will speak to us, that you will touch our hearts and our lives, and that we will leave this place transformed by who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the text we heard, the text we read, uh, begins with the king of Syria and all of his armies at the gate of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel in the northern kingdom, and 1 Kings 20 paints the picture of 32 subject kings with this one, with chariots and horses, and uh, they're ready for battle. They're right at the doors. And the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, sends messengers to Ahab, who's the king of Israel. And he says, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. Now, to understand what's happening here, in the ancient world, you know, the strongest kings would come and conquer a city. And the subject kings, you know, they would surrender and they would become subjects of this king. And they would have to fight for them. They would also give tributes to the conquering king on a regular basis. And if you wanted to remain the king of your own nation, you would have to pay a lot of money to these kings. But also, you would be on the call for the conqueror's battles. You would have to swear allegiance to him. They would take the gold, they would take the silver, they would take whatever feast they wanted, but they would also call your armies and yourself to fight for them. So this menacing king is at the gates. He's, he's ready to attack. He's claiming the children, he's claiming the wives, he's claiming gold, he's claiming silver. Now, just a, a couple of chapters ago, Ahab saw... God's power when God defeated the false prophets of the false god Baal. 
And God demonstrated to all the people of Israel that he is the true God, that he is the almighty one, the one that can cause rain or can stop it. The whole people chanted after all that demonstration, Yahweh is Lord, Yahweh is Lord. They recognized it. Now you might think that after that, Ahab would come to this Syrian king and he would say, how dare you pagan insolent king to come and defy the chosen people of God, the one who melts mountains and boils the ocean. Oh, if you know what's good for you, you should pick up your little soldiers and your stuff and go back home lest you become like straw under God's wrath. I mean, something like that, right? <laughs> but instead, we read verse 4. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my Lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. What? Ahab, aren't you even at least going to go and run to the prophet of God to see what God has to say about it? At least inquire what to do? You're just going to surrender? Just like that without a fight? I'm telling you, this Ahab has some character issues. Perhaps he thought that Ben-Hadad would say, oh, you know, okay, guys, let's pack up, let's go home, they surrender. But the king of Syria was a bully. And he now sends messengers telling a lie and demanding even more in verse 5. He says, thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, deliver to me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servant to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and your houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Whew, that's a very real threat. Those are not empty words. I mean, all the men outside of the city, they're ready. And what he's saying is tomorrow, I'm going to plunder the palace. And what's more, my men will go into the city and they will take whatever they want. Children, gold, silver, anything goes. King Ahab several groveling, my lord, O oh king, I'm yours, was good for nothing. So now he's on a tight corner. And all he can do is run to the elders of the land and tell them what's happening. Now it's very interesting When the elders hear the story of Ahab and you see what he has been doing, they're very concerned on the decisions this king is making. And so they have to strongly insist. They say, do not listen, do not consent. You see, in the Hebrew language, when you have the don't twice or a double no, that's like you writing in bold italics, all capitals, like pay attention, don't do this. Whatever you do, Ahab, do not give in. They felt doomed because this king was a man who lacks character. Let me tell you, there's nothing as sad as a man who lacks character. This guy's manhandled by Jezebel, his wife. He's not able to say no, even after seeing the showdown at Mount Carmel. And his wife is trying to kill Elijah. And he's allowing it. He's licking the boots of this tyrant king and his 32 pet kings. The guy is a wimp. What's more, next chapter, you're going to see him crying like a little baby because he can't have his neighbor's backyard. 
the king of Israel for, cry, for crying out loud. I mean, I don't know whatever happened to men. You see, when did we forget that we were created in the image of Almighty God to rule the earth? When did we drop the ball that God called us to provide leadership to our families, leadership to our children? And then your kids come, Daddy, can I go to my friend's house? Uh, ask your mama. Let's see what she says. Man, the world is in need of real, deep, meaningful leadership. God's called you to be a leader. God's called you to stand, to stand up for who he is. Stop passing all the decisions around just, just to find someone else, just in case something goes wrong, then you have someone else to blame. I didn't decide that. That's so lame. It's not everybody else's call. It's your call. A leadership that gets excited in love and mercy and grace. A leadership that points people in the right direction is the leadership of someone who knows who God is. Are you there? And as I say these things, I'm reminded of Paul when he is prisoner going on a ship to Rome and, and no one knows what to do in the middle of a shipwreck and this guy stands up and he starts telling everybody what to do in order to save their lives, including the soldiers and the centurion. Paul is a prisoner and he's taking leadership and he's doing all these things. He was not afraid. He was not, oh, maybe I'm imposing Oh, who am I to say something? I'm just a prisoner. No. Man up. Know your God, his power, his mercy. Know his grace and lead with respect, with confidence, in love. This wimp of a king sends messengers to Ben-Hadad. Tell my lord the king. Your lord? That king? Verse 9 says, so he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king all that you first demanded of your servant, I will do, but this thing I cannot do. Finally, some spine, little but some. And what happens next is just back and forth between them, insults until the fight is inevitable. Ben-Hadad swears, the gods do so to me and more also. He's basically saying that Samaria will be turned into dust and there's going to be nothing left. Even if people come after him, they're going to find nothing. He's going to level that place. And Israel responds, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Basically means stop bragging. Let's fight. Let's see who wins at the end. And then that guy will brag. And when the enemy king heard this, he had been drinking with his uh, subject kings for a long time, apparently, you know, having the tequilas until they swallow the worm or something like that. I don't know. And uh, when he heard these things, you know, that message was the straw that broke the camel's back. So he gives an order and the armies, the horses, the chariots, took their positions against the city. And here's where I say that God shows his grace in coming to our rescue. Listen to verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, 
Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I mean, you have to react at the way this is written. It says, Behold, a prophet came near to Ahab. Guess what? There is a God. Ahab didn't deserve that God would come to him. He didn't go to God. He didn't even think about the true king of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had many opportunities to be reminded about God through all this ordeal. Remember, the first message that the Syrian king said is, Thus says Ben-Hadad. Wasn't that the phrase that prophets usually spoke to kings when they were speaking in the name of God? Thus says the Lord. Ahab could be reminded about God. Or what about when the enemy king swore, the gods do so to me and more also? Wouldn't that have reminded Ahab of the real God, the true God of Israel? But he's so full of himself that there's no room for the real God. And yet, God comes to him. He sends his prophet and says, have you seen all this multitude? Have you seen the problem you're in, Ahab? Have you seen there's no easy way out? Have you seen you back down into the ditch and no one can help you? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day and you shall know that I am the Lord. Isn't that exactly what happens to you and me? that we were going about our lives, making mistakes, making poor decisions all over, getting ourselves in trouble, running away from God until one day, behold, God sent his prophet. God sent someone who told you about the undeserving grace we have in Jesus. And you were able to surrender your life to him. And you were able to bring everything to him. And then everything changed just like that. Because he came to our rescue. But the problem with some people is that they are slow to see such undeserving grace. You see, Ahab says, by whom? By whom is he going to save us? And the prophet says, by the youngsters, the servants of the governors, kids like David when he fought against Goliath, that they were not trained for battle at all. And when they put all these youngsters together, it was only 232. And the people of Israel that gathered for battle was only 7,000 people. And Ahab asks, who's going to lead them? <laughs> you, who else? You're the king. Man up, man. Now, if you were a Jew reading this book, uh, you remember when Elijah is complaining to God and God says, whoa, hang on, hang on, hang on, Elijah. You're not the only servant. I, I still have 7,000 more that haven't bent their knees to Baal. So you would be reminded of those 7,000 when you read about this 7,000. doesn't mean it's the same 7,000, but at least you, you'll be reminded of God's faithfulness and his promises and how he is paying attention. So this speck of an army with 232 youngsters in their fronts, they defeat the Syrians. They chase them and struck the horses, the chariots with a great blow. So God showed his grace in coming to a rescue, but now God shows his grace 
in revealing himself. You see, sometimes we see God in action and we just write it off with our misconceptions. God, God comes and he does something amazing and then we attribute it to Mother Nature or good luck or how skilled someone is and then we fail to see the God who loves us, the God who cares for us, the one who comes to a rescue time after time after time and sometimes we don't even notice. I remember a few years ago, I, I watched a video about a girl who uh, went to the mountain to ski. So she's listening to her music and she puts her skis on and, and she has a GoPro camera pointing at her and she's ready and then off she goes down the slope and she has a wonderful day. She gets back home and then when she starts watching this video, she's terrified because it just so happened, the minute she launches, there was a huge grizzly bear running at her trying to get her. And she's just listening to her music going down and the bear is like trying to catch this girl. And suddenly she just, boom, she just goes. She didn't even know the kind of danger she was in until hours later. You see, and people would say, ah, oh, lucky girl. As if God had nothing to do with it. The advisors of the king of Syria thought like that. Listen to verse 23. The servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, and we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Maybe that's the reason. God is God in the mountains but he's not God in the valley, right? Ha, ha, ha. We may laugh at this, but you see, we are very much like that people sometimes. We think that God has the power to save us. He's got the power and, and, and we believe and trust him for our salvation. But is he big enough that we may seek him in the midst of physical challenges? Is he big enough that we might seek him so that he would help us parenting our children, providing for our every needs, spiritual, physical, emotional. Is he the God of the hills only, or is he the God of the hills and the valleys and the God of your life? The God of the universe. Hmm. You see, after the first battle, the prophet came near to Ahab a second time, and he warned him to prepare for next year because this king would come back with a greater power. And the time came, and the Syrians were at the, at the valley of Aphek, ready to fight, and the prophet of God comes a third time to Ahab. Now listen to verse 27. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, 
Because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is the third time, the third time that God sends his prophet to Ahab, and the second time God says to him, I'm going to give you the victory so that you will know that I am the Lord. Now, what's interesting to me is that the first you was the singular you. It's talking to Ahab. But this time, this time is plural. You see, God showed his grace in revealing himself one more time to Ahab. He did so at Mount Carmel, but he did again at the battle. And Ahab, 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 are you so slow, so blind? But now God is going to show himself so that everyone knows that he is the Lord. Yahweh, the one who fulfills his covenant, the one who's true, the one who's faithful. Ahab doesn't deserve this. And yet God shows his grace, revealing himself to him, to the people around him, just as he shows his grace in revealing himself to you and to me. You see, he's never asked us to believe in him blindfolded. He shows himself again and again and again, time after time, that he's real, that he is the creator. What else do we need? Do we need him to come in person? Do we need him to do some miracles like healing the sick, walking on water, raising people from the death? Well, guess what? He's already done that. He has revealed himself so that we know that he is God. And just in case we're hesitant, he will display his power. And God shows his grace in displaying his power. Here you have the Syrian army filling the country and the people of Israel like two flocks of goats. And yet God gives them such a victory that in one day they stroke a hundred thousand soldiers. And then the, the 27,000 men who were left, a wall fall on them. That's more than the entire population of Chilliwack. And Ben-Hadad went into the city and he was just hiding door to door to door to door. Utterly defeated and running for his life. How's that for a display of power? Hmm? A bunch of ragged Israelites defeating the super armies of Syria. Now I'm sure you have seen God's power in your life. I know I have. Sometimes it escapes us because like Elijah, we're, we're looking for the thunder and the earthquake and, and, and the parting of the sea. But we miss the fact that God is there, that God has been keeping my marriage together for 25 years. Believe me, you'll need God's power to be married to a wretch like me. Ask my wife. You need power, grace. We miss God's power every morning when he allows us to get off bed. When your heart pumps and nobody knows why, but it pumps and it's there. And your lungs inflate with every breath that God gives you. Hmm. What do you think is the source for your ability to conduct business and your creativity and your ingenuity? 
God said in Deuteronomy 8, 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and my might and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God doesn't have to do that. He doesn't need to do that. We don't deserve his favor. Since we all have walked away from God and rebelled against him. And yet he shows his grace and he comes to a rescue. And he reveals himself and he shows his power. And he's showing his grace to us time after time. And now he will show his grace giving us a choice. After the battle, King Ahab finds Ben-Hadad, the enemy of God. And he says to him, hey, my brother. And he welcomes him into his chariot and their best buddies. And he even makes a covenant with the enemy king under the enemy king's terms. It makes no sense whatsoever except if Ahab is just looking for his own personal gain and personal interest instead of God's. You see... God's grace is amazing, but his patience has a limit. And there is a point where we may fill up his, the cup of his patience. Ahab has just done that. At the end of this chapter, we see a puzzling scene with a prophet of God asking one of his fellows to strike him, and he refuses. The prophet then says in verse 36, Because you have not obeyed, the voice of the Lord. Behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. A blunt reminder of the necessity of obeying God always. There comes a time when we must realize God is not someone to trifle with. He's not our buddy that we can play pranks on him. He's the almighty God. The prophet eventually finds someone who would strike him so that he can play out the parable message to God of, uh, from God to Ahab. He disguises himself as a wounded soldier and he meets the king. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man and by any means he's missing. Your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. That's an outrageous amount of money, impossible for any soldier to come up with. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so, your, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. In other words, you had it coming. Suck it up. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of, of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. After everything that Ahab has seen and experienced, there's no repentance in his heart. There's no mercy for one of his soldiers. One of the men who fought for him. Oh, he's got mercy for the king of Syria, all right. He's nice to him. He's got grace for that man. But for his own soldier, he says, you got it coming. Suck it up. 
And the prophet's going to tell him the very same words. Ahab, you have trampled God's gifts. And he, he's going to pay for that. All of us are Ahab one way and another. All of us have enjoyed God's grace every day of our lives. You see the flowers bloom. The sun shines in the sky. The, the land produces. The rain comes. All undeserved gifts for people who have been rebellious against their creator. But he has come near. He has come near. He has revealed himself. He has displayed his power. He has come to our rescue. And now he gives us a choice. Will you accept the free gift of my grace in Jesus, my own son, whom I've sent to die in your place so that you would have a life in him? God is saying, as I resurrected Jesus from the grave, I am powerful enough to resurrect you and to give you a life that will never end. Would you yield to God? Would you surrender whole to Jesus in whom there is forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God? Or will you go hum, vexed and sullen as Ahab awaiting the unavoidable result of our rebellion? So my invitation this morning to you is choose Jesus. Get to know the God that approaches you, even when you're not looking for him. The God that delights in blessing you. The God that gives grace to the most undeserving. Would you stand for me, with me for prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, you are just such a loving God. You glorify yourself in giving and giving and giving. And you have given your only son so that we would be justified before you. Father, this morning, we thank you for that. We thank you for the opportunity that you have given each one of us to be reconciled with you, to have peace with you. And even those of us who have, would you allow us to, to get to know you better, to live for you really, when we decided to surrender whole and give you our lives, that we understand that it belongs to you now, that you are our Lord. Father, we just want to be a tool in your hands so that this world may know you and that we will come to you for you have come before to us. We bless you in Jesus' name.